Hi, and welcome to The Turbulent World with me, James M. Dorsey, as your host. With the Gaza ceasefire and prisoner exchange talks stalled, Israel and its hardline U.S. supporters have stepped up long-standing efforts to discredit Qatar, the main mediator between Hamas and the Israeli government. The anti-Qatar campaign accuses the Gulf state that, encouraged by the United States and Israel, has made conflict mediation and resolution a mainstay of its foreign and soft power policy of supporting militant groups like Hamas and the Taliban and funding terrorism. The stepped-up efforts coincide with Israel effectively walking away from Qatari, Egyptian, and U.S. efforts to negotiate a prolonged ceasefire in the four-month-old Gaza war and a prisoner exchange that would free the remaining 136 Hamas-held Israeli hostages and the bodies of captives killed during the war. Hamas abducted some 250 people during its October 7 attack on Israel. More than 120 hostages were released in November during a one-week Qatar-mediated truce in exchange for 240 Palestinians held in Israeli prisons. The anti-Qatar campaign scored a tangible success earlier this month, with Texas A&M University's announcement that it was shutting down its two-decade-old Qatar campus. Handsomely funded by Qatar Foundation, or QF, Texas A&M is one of eight foreign universities, including Georgetown, Northwestern, Well Cornell Medicine, and Carnegie Mellon, alongside Qatar's Hamad bin Khalifa University, with operations in the Gulf States Education City. In a statement, the foundation said Texas A&M's decision was influenced by a disinformation campaign aimed at harming the interests of QF. It is deeply disappointing that a globally respected academic institution like Texas A&M University has fallen victim to such a campaign and allowed politics to infiltrate its decision-making processes. Texas A&M said its decision was due to heightened instability in the Middle East. The closure followed the publication of a report by the New York-based Pro-Israel Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy, ISGAP, alleging that Texas A&M had shared sensitive nuclear energy and weapons development research with the Guthrie government. Texas A&M denied the allegations. The report said Qatar paid Texas A&M more than $1 billion for the rights to all intellectual and material assets developed in more than 500 technology projects in sensitive fields such as nuclear science, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, robotics, biotechnology, and advanced weapons development. Allowing Qatar, with its links to terrorist organizations, to have complete control of this research through IP ownership creates unacceptable risks of technology transfer and appropriation of breakthroughs with military applications, the report warned. It suggested the advanced technology could find its way to militant groups like Hamas and Lebanon's Iran-backed Hezbollah militia. 
More sanguine Israeli scholars argue that the goal of Guthrie Investments is not necessarily to steal secrets like the Chinese, but to acquire influence. What's important to Qatar is how it can influence American policy through soft power. I'm less afraid of technology theft. I see things like the partnership with Texas A&M as a Guthrie investment, said Yoel Guzanski, a former head of Iran and the Gulf at Israel's National Security Council, a Middle East scholar who wrote his dissertation on Qatar's hedging policies. The anti-Qatar campaign is not that far in time from the days that Mr. Netanyahu asked Qatar to fund the salaries of Gaza's Hamas administration and some reconstruction after five earlier wars. Mr. Guzanski noted that his efforts as the head of Harpoon, a secret Israeli unit created to foil money transfers to militants and Iran, fell on Mr. Netanyahu's deaf ears. His policy changed to the transfer of money from Qatar to the Gaza Strip. And then the international system stopped blocking Hamas's money because they said to us, if you won't handle it, why should we? That started in 2014, Mr. Guzanski said. The Middle East Media Research Institute, Memory, founded by Yigal Karmon, a former advisor to Israel's West Bank and Gaza Occupation Authority, and Prime Ministers Yitzhak Shamir and Yitzhak Rabin, has produced in recent months a series of reports designed to bolster Israel's campaign against Qatar. In Memory's latest broadside, Mr. Kamon asserted, echoing Mr. Netanyahu, that the hostage negotiations were faltering because Qatar is not pressuring Hamas. It sees itself as a mere go-between. Qatar isn't pressuring Hamas, despite the fact that in reality, Qatar is the lifeline of Hamas. Its hope, its future, its power to continue to fight and to hold the hostages. Ignoring that Hamas was founded in 1986 in Israeli-occupied and besieged Gaza at a time that Israel tacitly saw the group as an antidote to Yasser Arafat's Palestine Liberation Organization, Mr. Karmon charged that Qatar built Hamas from a small organization into a military and political power. It took pride in its training of Hamas security officials. Without Qatar, Hamas is doomed. To be fair, Mr. Carmon's tirade also took Mr. Netanyahu to task for allowing Guthrie funds to flow to Hamas. Mr. Netanyahu violated Israeli and international anti-terrorism laws by allowing the money from Qatar, a state sponsor of terrorism, to reach Hamas, recognized as a terrorist organization across the West, thereby transforming this violation into a policy until it exploded in his face, Mr. Kamon said. On Sunday, Mr. Netanyahu asserted that the release of hostages can be achieved through strong military action and tough negotiations, very tough negotiations. That tough position has to involve the exertion of pressure, and the exertion of pressure is not merely on Hamas itself, but on those who exert pressure on Hamas, beginning with Qatar. In response, Qatar Foreign Ministry spokesman Majid Al-Ansari called on the Prime Minister 
to focus on the path of the negotiations that serves the security of the region and end the ongoing tragedy of the war instead of issuing such statements whenever it suits his narrow political agenda. Mr. Netanyahu's hard line in the ceasefire negotiations, an effort to discredit the mediator, has as much to do with domestic Israeli politics as with not wanting to hand Hamas a victory when Israel has yet to show substantial progress in destroying the group not only militarily, but also politically and organizationally. Hamas's ability to maintain its position in the ceasefire and prisoner exchange negotiations highlights Israel's failure so far to wipe the group off the face of the earth. U.S. intelligence estimated earlier this month that Israel has killed or captured at most 30% of Hamas's 30,000 fighting force. The Israeli military said in early January that it had killed or captured up to 9,000 Hamas fighters. Adding fuel to the fire, Hamas has resurfaced in parts of Gaza from which Israeli forces have withdrawn in the past month in the belief that they had eliminated the group's presence in parts of the Strip. In Gaza City, the Strip's largest urban area, Hamas has recently deployed uniformed and plainclothes police officers to prevent the looting of shops and houses abandoned by residents and restore law and order, and made salary payments to some of its civil servants. In doing so, Hamas, on the back of its governance, infrastructure, and charity network, positions itself as the only entity willing and able to administer Gaza and provide essential services in a wasteland in which Israel curtails the flow of desperately needed aid and seemingly systematically destroys Gaza civilian infrastructure. Hamas's effort to return a semblance of governance exploits Israel's Catch-22. Focused on destroying the group and hesitant to shoulder responsibility for providing aid and basic services as it refuses to lay out its vision for Gaza once the guns fall silent, Israel is caught between a rock and a hard place. It is damned if it assumes responsibility for governance of the Strip, 19 years after Israeli troops withdrew and imposed an Egyptian-supported blockade of the Strip, and damned for a war that makes Gaza unlivable in violation of international law. Further complicating things, Israel's demonization of Gaza is paralleled by a campaign to shutter the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, the foremost aid organization operating in Gaza and the Strip's third largest employer. At least 18 countries last month suspended UNRWA funding after Israel and the United States asserted that 12 of UNRWA's 13,000 Gaza employees had participated in Hamas's October 7 attack. By refusing to engage in Gaza's civilian governance, while denying other non-hostile actors a role in post-conflict re reconstruction, Israel is providing Hamas with the silver platter of legitimacy that it needs to survive the conflict, said peace and security scholar Rob Geist Pinfold. The issue of governance in war ravaged Gaza shot on Monday to the top of the agenda, with the International Court of Justice, or EICJ's, 
historic week-long hearings on the legality of Israel's 57-year-long occupation of Palestinian lands conquered during the 1967 Middle East War. The hearings are in response to a December 2022 United Nations General Assembly request for an ICJ review of Israel's occupation, settlement, and annexation, including measures aimed at altering the demographic composition, character, and status of the Holy City of Jerusalem, and from its adoption of related discriminatory legislation and measures. The Assembly asked the ICJ to issue a non-binding advisory opinion on how Israeli policies affect the legal status of the occupation and what legal consequences arise for countries and the United Nations from this status. 52 countries and three international organizations are scheduled to present on the Israeli occupation, which the Palestinians and many in the international community deem illegal. It's the largest number of parties to participate in any ICJ case since the court was established in 1945. Israel has opted to submit a written rather than an oral presentation in a case that is separate from ongoing proceedings at South Africa's behest on whether its conduct of the Gaza war amounts to genocide. The case will put before the court a litany of accusations and allegations and grievances, which are probably going to be uncomfortable and embarrassing for Israel, given the war and the already very polarized international environment, said Israeli law professor Yuval Shani. Palestine Authority Foreign Ministry official Omar Awadallah spelt out how uncomfortable and embarrassing the case should be. We want to hear new words from the court. They've had to consider the word genocide in the South Africa case. Now, we want them to consider apartheid, Mr. Awadallah said. Israelis fear that the fallout of the ICJ condemnation of the Israeli occupation could go beyond words. If, for example, in its opinion, the court rules that settlements constitute an international war crime, Countries could stop selling arms to Israel, as a court in the Netherlands has already recently ordered. Israeli goods are liable to be labeled, and personal sanctions against settlers, such as were imposed in the United States, could be stepped up, said Israeli lawyer Yuval Sasson, who specializes in international law. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed today's column and podcast. The Turbulent World with James M. Dorsey, depends on the support of its readers. For the past 12 years, I have maintained free distribution as a way of maximizing impact. I am determined to keep it that way. However, to avoid putting up a paywall, I need the support of a core of voluntary paid subscribers to cover the cost of producing the column and podcast. If you believe that the column and podcast add value to your understanding and that of the broader public, please consider becoming a paid subscriber. You can do so by clicking on Substack on the subscription button at www.jamesmdorsey.substack.com and choosing one of the subscription options. Thank you, take care, and best wishes. 